This is The Mystical Positivist, a radio show dedicated to the application of reason in the pursuit of spiritual practice and development. It consists of commentary, book reviews, interviews, and discussion in and around the local and larger spiritual community. The thesis of the show is that rationality is in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience. In fact, we assert that it is a necessary ally. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me in the following presentation is my co-host, Dr. Robert Schmidt. Rob is the director of Taiyu Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. This week on the show, we feature a pre-recorded conversation with Elliot Cohen, author of The Psychologization of Eastern Spiritual Traditions, Colonization, Translation, and Commodification. This essential book critically examines the various ways in which Eastern spiritual traditions have been typically stripped of their spiritual roots, content, and context to become more readily assimilated into secular Western frames of psychology. Dr. Elliot Cohen is a chartered psychologist and senior lecturer in social and interdisciplinary psychology at Leeds Beckett University in the UK. He worked as a psychotherapist for several years and then worked in psychiatric units and therapeutic communities in and around Manchester, specializing in psychodrama, drama therapy, music therapy, and mindful-based therapies. He is the current secretary of the British Psychological Society's Transpersonal Section and an active member of the Discourse Unit, which promotes more critical, radical approaches to psychology. Elliot has traveled extensively around the Far East, where he studied Taoist, Buddhist, and Hindu philosophy. He is an authorized teacher of Buddhist meditation and mindfulness-based approaches from the Dhamma Nikatanaya Buddhist Academy. Elliot Cohen, welcome to The Mystical Positivist. Thank you for having me. It's good to have you, and we'll begin uh, with, uh, as we do with our first-time guests, um, by asking you about... Well, inviting you, rather, to uh, cast your mind back to childhood and youth and um, ask you to reflect on any experiences from that period of your life that may have prefigured or been harbingers for the work that you have done later in life, uh, including writing uh, the psychology, psychologization of Eastern spiritual traditions. It is a mouthful. I it was is. originally going to call it the lotus and the butterfly, but I was told that was a bit too flowery and abstract. Yes, I, ha I have to remember to, to put the emphasis on the right syllable, and sometimes <laughs> I miss. And then, of course, in America, you spell it differently with a, with a Z or with a Z, psychologization. Right. We yeah. spell it with an S. So... Um, so anything from uh, youth and childhood? Like the formative, the sort of the psychoanalytic sort of delving. <laughs> well, I don't know about psycho. Down. I don't know about <laughs> psycho. I don't know about psychoanalytic, but but um, uh, uh, we we've gotten some interesting uh, uh, stories by asking this yeah. question. Like well, I suppose as you can probably tell from my name, Cohen. There is the uh, the Jewish background, and I did have. Uh, an orthodox Jewish upbringing. And um, I remember being told by my grandfather uh, that Cohen, Kohen, meant priest, and that my mm -hmm. family were part of that um, Aaronic lineage. And um, that this was, this was important. And uh, I, I have a clear sense of what 
being a priest meant as a child. And in fact, my earliest recollection of the use of the term was um, from uh, a Japanese TV show, which in the UK, the BBC, um, they called it Monkey. And this was the famous story Journey to the West, um, which was uh, dubbed quite comically by uh, British actors, Shakespearean actors, all doing quite, um, I suppose, in this day and age, would be seen as quite appallingly racist attempt of doing Chinese accents. Mm. And um, that really was very formative. And in it, there was the, the boy priest, Tripitaka, who was, placed, who was played um, actually by the very beautiful Japanese actress, uh, Masako Natsume. And um, that, that was confusing as a child, but that was my, you know, well, she's a priest or he's a priest and a Buddhist priest. And, uh, you know, they have to go to India to get the Buddhist scriptures. Mm. And I knew about scriptures because we had the, the Torah. And uh, so I, I kind of mixed all this together as a very young child, the story of Journey to the West, Tripitaka, the Buddhist priest. I was a priest. And um, I suppose all sorts of other shows that I grew up with as well. So you're probably uh, very familiar with um, sort of 1970s uh, Kung Fu with David Carradine yes. or Carradine, do you say? Do you say Carradine or Carradine? I think we say Carradine. 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 Yeah, I think that's the right. I don't know what he says. Yeah. Well, he doesn't say much anymore, unfortunately. I, I, I but, guess that's um, true. But that was uh, hugely influential as, as well um, as, as a child growing up. I mean, this is, this is what I was watching. And uh, he was a priest as well. <laughs> Uh, he was a, a Shaolin priest, according to the story. Um, although the the set where it was set looked very much like a Hollywood style medieval sort of castle props, but um, uh, they worked with what they had. Um, that was hugely formative. Um, all all those shows, sort of growing up. As a matter of fact, so much so that the the Sabbath, the Shabbat in our house couldn't really start until i watched monkey which was on on a friday <laughs> um, so it was some interesting sort of clash between halacha jewish law and and my need to actually uh, watch watch this show that began the weekend for me um and you know the, the story of journey to the west is, is very much this kind of taoist buddhist hybrid story um which is is full of um sort of Taoist symbolism, alchemy, um, Buddhist teachings, all sort of thickly, skillfully mixed together. And it's also, I'd say, um, kind of very archetypal tale, you know, monkey, Tripitaka, Pixie, these are all archetypal characters. And later when I started to study analytical psychology and Jung, um, Journey to the West would become sort of very, very important uh, for me again. Um, so it's one of those stories that I think has been hugely uh, formative in my uh, childhood memories and my upbringing. And, and even even today, I have more copies and translations of Journey to the West uh, in, in this house than, than any other book. <laughs> so um, did you, from out of that, did you... Um, find yourself drawn to the psychological field or did you, was there uh, an excursion into like a spiritual tradition or any sort of traditional practice that uh, was either happening prior or parallel or post 
involvement in uh, or or in or in your your own Jewish family tradition, right? Yeah. Well, the the family tradition was was interesting because my my family you could consider to be described um, as more traditional rather than religious, which is interesting. We were we were called Orthodox. We we're members of an Orthodox synagogue, but we had a rather laid back attitude um, to it which allowed me to watch things like Monkey on a Friday night, for instance. Um, but I remember my family being uh, a little bit more concerned when I turned like 15, 16. And um, then sort of the books in my room started to be more sort of Taoist and, and Buddhist, uh, a little Buddha Rupa, a little Buddha statue suddenly appeared. Um, and I... I think it probably again. I, I blame Monkey. I blame Journey to the West. In the beginning of that show, they had a direct quote from the Dharmapada: um, "With our thoughts, we make the world." It actually said, "Tathagata Buddha, the Father Buddha, said, with our thoughts, we make the world.'" And I heard this every every week. And I thought, "What does this mean? With our thoughts, we make the world." It's kind of a flowery translation um, of the original, but it's one that that really stuck with me. And I think. That probably more than anything else uh, led to my interest in psychology and this mm. idea of uh, our thoughts shaping our experience, the way the way we see the world, the way we be in the world. And it was definitely um, Buddhism and, and Taoism um, before Freud. Actually, the first um, sort of psychological. Uh, book I read was actually Anna Freud, um, Ego and Mechanisms of, of Defense. And then I went on to the introductory lectures of psychoanalysis. So I, I was I was a bit out of date, really, because when I started doing my undergraduate psychology course, it was all cognitive and neuroscience and an awful lot of statistics. And here I was studying the so-called, in inverted commas, the embarrassing grandfather of psychology, uh, seeing all this value in this depth psychology and, and hardly getting to, uh, to study it or explore it. Um, but it was certainly wisdom traditions before uh, psychology that led to my interest in psychology. So, so um, it sounds like you're saying that the interest in um, what you just called the wisdom traditions of, of uh, uh, Asia um, were the instigation for your, delving and starting to delve into psychology even before school you studied it formally in school is that right yeah well and i noticed that when i suddenly discovered rather late my library at uh, at school um it was a nice school in leeds we had a lovely library and um you know they had a copy of um Tao Te ching which is very beautiful i remember reading that and just falling in love with it and reading it again and again and again this is the fan in english uh translation um which which i just which, which you use in the book uh yes uh sort of a, a, probably again and again um, <laughs> yes. um so it's uh it's it's one that i really love i think i loved it also because of the uh the beautiful calligraphy um in it and uh, you know the, the sort of the the love of chinese calligraphy also is is, is something that, that stayed with me my, my wife is actually a, a, a calligrapher chinese mm. calligrapher um that, that was actually our, our first date was she was teaching me uh, calligraphy. I wasn't very good, 
Um, but <laughs> she stuck with me and she still sticks with me um, many years later. Um, but yeah, absolutely. It was these, it was these traditions. And I remember at the time when I was 15, 16, uh, my family getting a little bit concerned at my sort of, um, sort of Eastern escapades, as they sometimes refer to them as, um, that this wasn't a fad, it wasn't going away and it was getting a little bit, a little bit serious, you know, that the books were getting a little bit, um, sort of taking up all the space on the shelves and, you know, it was, it was quite a habit, which I've, I've, I've really not cut down on. Um, if anything, it's got worse as I've uh, got older. But um, I remember they were speaking to the rabbi because uh, they were getting a little bit concerned and they said, all right, you should probably, he's a bit young, but you should probably get him some books on Kabbalah um, and sort of steer him back in a more sort of Judaic direction. And so I remember my father, he, he was, um, uh, traveling to Israel at the time, and he brought me back this uh, uh, wonderful translation, an early translation by Daniel Matt, who uh, went on later to translate with his team the whole of the uh, the Zohar, um, the Sefer Zohar, the Book of Splendor, a central text of of Jewish mysticism, and um, uh, Arya Kaplan's works on the Sefer Yitzirah and the Sefer Bahir, all these sort of um, primary Jewish mystical texts. And uh, I remember being very excited by these as well, that, you know, this is with the, the blessing of the family rabbi that I could, I was allowed uh, to look at these, although technically you're supposed to be over 40 and you're supposed to be married with kids and you're supposed to have a really good uh, background in traditional uh, Jewish studies, and Torah and Talmud. And uh, um, I, I didn't really have that but um they were they were trying to uh you know desperate times called for desperate measures and they were trying to steer me in a more judaic mystical direction and 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 how did you how did you find those books um i i loved them and i still do love them and i i went on later um to study more formally with uh professor daniel matt um he's uh, teaches the zohar um online um he has a sort of a zoom group that was absolutely mm. wonderful it was nourishing and also professor les lancaster um who was actually the uk's first professor of transpersonal psychology um who was for some time the chair of the british psychological society's transpersonal psychology section uh, a role that i very recently stepped into only a few months ago um I also studied with him for uh, a decade or so, uh, looking through uh, Jewish texts, particularly the Sefer Yetzirah, um, the Book of Formation, and work we did around the Hebrew letters and the alphabet. Um, so that that was uh, work that went on for some time as well and ran parallel to my sort of on, ongoing studies. I think it's like uh, must be 25, 26 years plus now um, of studies of the Buddhist and the Taoist uh, teachings and traditions as well. Well, that's interesting. I, 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 uh, it sounds like you, you, you were um, fairly serious about um, both sides, both the Eastern and the uh, Judaic uh, traditions. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm wondering how each side of your of your uh, study of spiritual traditions informed the other. Yeah, um, it, it's something that I, I thought about um, a lot. Maybe 
maybe too much actually um it's uh sometimes you can you can overthink these mm. things and find yourself yeah. in cul-de-sacs and, and dead ends um I always say that you know socrates says the unexamined life isn't worth living but i sort of always add to that when i'm talking about socrates with, with, with my students that the over examined life becomes unlivable and this sort of this question about you know how which informs which and i suppose what i was trying to do in the early days was to try and synthesize and blend them that's that was like the um seemed like the common sense thing to do but but over the years i've, I've tried to sort of compartmentalize more uh, respect what the um, former chief rabbi jonathan Sachs refers to as the dignity of difference and recognize that mm-hmm. um you you actually lose something when you start trying to to blend them uh together and i think it's something of a more of a let's say new age and i don't mean that in, a, in any kind of derogatory uh sense but um kind of more sort of the, the interspiritual right. uh way to be more syncretic and to to blend and, and mix but in a strange way i've become more of a traditionalist um and i, I like to sort of to treat them separately uh, put them in their different categories and recognize that they they have different ends, different aims, different practices, and different emphases. So um, that's. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Finish. Oh no, I kind of finished that. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, so I'm I'm interested in what, the extent to which you delved into actual practices in each uh, in 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 Taoism, Buddhism, as well as Judaism. Um, as you were reading about the ideas, uh, etc. Yeah, well, um, I, I suppose I should start with Buddhism because that was that was the one that really sort of uh, resonated the most. And when I was uh, sort of sixteen, um, at, at that time, I, I probably considered myself um, a Buddhist, and I was uh, um, studying quite sort of seriously um, with sort of the Theravadan. Uh, tradition that was uh, Ajahn Chah's school and um, I was also um, starting to study a little later with a Tibetan tradition at one point um, when I was in my 20s um, I hit upon the idea that I I probably needed to be a monk if I was going to make sufficient progress and uh, I went to um, a monastery I remember my father dropped me off he spent the journey trying to convince me not to do this this was a, a bad idea um and i remember going to uh ratanagiri uh, monastery uh which is in newcastle it's uh, still there um it's ajan menindo um, a wonderful monk a wonderful teacher um and i had an interview um to see if i would be a suitable uh candidate and um we sort of came to the uh, very kind of mm-hmm. loose understanding that I'd finished my PhD. I was doing my psychology PhD and then, then I'll be a monk. Um, and mm-hmm. you know, that was sort of all sorted out in my head. Of course, it's not that simple. You've got to spend sort of a year or so, maybe longer as an Anagarika, sort of a, sort of a novice and it's, it's all understood. Uh, but in my head, I had it quite sort of clear that, okay, I'll finish my, my PhD and then I'll become a monk in the Theravadan tradition, the Thai forest tradition. Um, and 
that that was all sort of nice and, and clear. And and then in the process of doing my uh, PhD, I sort of met someone, and um, you know, calligraphy I, entered your life. Is that uh, is that uh, entered my life? And um, <laughs> other things suddenly uh, became more peripheral. And it was around that same time that I was um, studying um, Tibetan Buddhism. We've got a wonderful um, teacher here, Lama Jampa Thai. Um, he's one of the few Western um, trained lamas in the Kamakaju uh, tradition um, who's qualified to give these uh, Vajrayana empowerments. And I was very lucky to, sort of, to meet him in the early days when he was still living uh, in Manchester, and um, from the sort of Tibetan Buddhist school, uh, there was less of an emphasis uh, on monasticism and more of an idea that, you know, as a, as a tantrika, you might even be a, a nagpa. Um, you might even be sort of a, a non-monastic practitioner. And the monast- uh, non-monastic practitioners could be married and have children and uh, became sort of quite interested in, in this uh, tradition as well. Um, so the, the Kamakaju and also the Nyingmapa uh, tradition of Tibetan Buddhism. And around that same time, um, I was um, I was doing a lot of traveling at the time. I was in Tibet and um, meeting. I was I was looking for uh, Kamakaju practitioners and monasteries, but I just kept bumping into Nyingmapa practitioners and also the Bun uh, practitioner as well, that more shamanistic um, indigenous tradition uh, of, of Tibet. I had some fun encounters with them and, um, and th- they were telling me things like, oh, you want to study with us because, uh, you know, we're, we're the older tradition, we're the better tradition. Um, you know, the, uh, you know, the, the Bun's better because if, if you're being troubled by a spirit, uh, you want us really uh, to help you out, not the Tibetan Buddhists. And I says, I'll tell you why. He was quite emphatic about this. He says, you know, the Tibetans, they need to read their texts. Uh, we <laughs> memorize all of ours. So, you know, if they're doing an exorcism and the spirit blows the candle out, well, you're stuck. They can't read anymore. But we, <laughs> we've got it all in here. And, you know, they can blow out all the candles and we just keep going. And, you know, that spirit doesn't have a chance. It's... Uh, so they, they they were they were really fun and um you know but i, I couldn't meet any kaju um sort of lamas they all seem to be nyingmapa so i thought well maybe that's this uh um this idea of, of, of tendril of um of, you know your, your karmic connection to this uh tradition um so i was studying with the nyingmapa school and also the kaju school um and then i was in china and um, when I was in China, I was at the uh, White Cloud Temple, which is um, a sort of a Taoist tradition, the um, Chuanjin uh, Complete Reality School, the uh, Longmen um, Dragon Gate tradition. And I ended up going to some Taoism conferences and giving little talks on Taoism and, and psychology. I ended up joining the British Taoist Association and um, hanging out with some of the uh, the priests in, in China and also um, in the in the UK as well. Um, and so that that almost felt like going back to the beginning because it was the Tao, De, it was the Tao De Ching that um, was mm. probably one of those first scriptures 
um, that I studied. So this was um, kind of uh, wandering, informed wandering, maybe. Uh, there's a lovely expression in the um, in the Taoist tradition, cloud wandering. I think they use it in the, in the Buddhist tradition as well. You go from temple to temple, teacher to teacher. You're always searching for the, the Tao, the way, um, finding it in, in, in different traditions, trying to learn the different um, sort of languages, the different uh, ways of speaking, ways of, of practicing uh, in, these, in these different traditions. Thank you. Well, you're reminding me of, uh, of uh, the various chapters in your book, uh, with this uh, recitation of the different uh, influences that you that you had in your in your personal life, but of course, as you've all already related, you uh, became. Uh, well, I don't know. I don't know how how, the, how this proceeded, but you got your PhD, um, and presumably went on to teach at some point. Um, and I, I'm wondering if that story had anything. Uh, any um, ties with the uh, spiritual history that you just uh, recounted for us? I, I think so. I mean, the PhD itself um, concerned new religious movements. Uh, my, my undergraduate and postgraduate work was all around new religious movements and the idea of, of cultic groups. Um, and this was at a time where I was sort of loosely involved with the Cult Information Centre, but also uh, involved with uh, Eileen Barker's work, the Centre for the Study of New Religious Movements, uh, which are quite um, at odds, those those two groups. I should think. Uh, Yeah. Um, And so um, one of the case study groups that I used was a group called the Jews for Jesus. Um, (laughs) I just loved that name, sort of Jews for Jesus. I thought, what, what is... What is this about? And I was interested in this idea of hybrid identities um, of multiple religious belonging and what it was about the Jews for Jesus that put them beyond the pale, uh, that placed them very much in that category of of other, um, that meant that Jewish communities were were generally uh, labeling them as a cultic group, as a dangerous group, that their members were somehow brainwashed, that they uh, involved in subterfuge and their, their style of proselytizing was very manipulative. They were using psychological coercion. So I thought as a psychologist, it'd be interesting to go in and find out what's, what's going on. Um, and that was my, uh, my, my main PhD. It was uh, looking at the Jews for Jesus group and it was called brother or other. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I'm sort of obsessed with wordplay and alliteration. I hope that didn't annoy you too much in the book. It annoys, <laughs> it annoys me when I when I read back. I thought, oh, for goodness sake, you know. I, 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 I've cut down a lot on the... I'm, apparently, it's an example of bad writing, excessive alliteration, but um, I, I don't know why I'm, I'm stuck on it. I think my, my, the worst one I ever did was a paper on the tea ceremony, and it was called A Tantalising Taste of the Timeless Transcendent. And that was, our, you know, I've got at that point, I said, I've got a problem. I need to admit I have a problem and sort of cut, cut down on the alliteration. But um, yeah, there's so never the, too much alliteration in my view, but that's you. OK. Thank you. I'm glad, <laughs> I'm glad that you, you, you like and, and puns, um, hopefully not, not, not too many. Um, but yeah, the, the early work was around this idea of kind of religious identity. And I, I was 
I was fascinated with this contrast, the idea that most people in, in, in Leeds, the Jewish community in Leeds, which is very small and, and kind of compact, um, it almost had kind of felt to me anyway, growing up there, like a little bit of an Amish vibe um, that was kept, the community kept itself sort of quite relatively insular and quite, quite separate um, to the fact that my grandfather used to refer to my non-Jewish friends as my English friends, you know, um, that, that sort of sense of, of difference. But, you know, everyone knew that I'd become interested in, in, in Buddhism and Eastern spirituality. And I remember my, uh, one of, one of my uh, rabbis, that sort of close family friend, um, if that wasn't enough, even his, his surname was Cohen as well. So it was like Rabbi, Rabbi Cohen. Um, you know, he'd, he'd see me sometimes on, on the Sabbath when I'm supposed to be in synagogue and I'm, um, I'm, I'm out and about. Um, I've got sort of a shaved head at the time. I'm sort of uh, looking as if I'm about to go on a, a retreat somewhere. And I remember him sort of calling at me from across the road um, on, on this Saturday when he saw me, he yelled, hey, Eliyahu, used my Hebrew name. Hey, Eliyahu, come here, come here. And he says, what, what, what? this? Uh, says, Eliyahu, you still Buddhist? <laughs> are you still Buddhist? I go, uh, oh, uh, I, I guess so, Rabbi. It's just, ah, come here, you mashugana. Gave me a big hug. Mashugana, like, you're crazy. You're sort of like, yep. but it, was, it was like, you're crazy, but you're still one of us. You're crazy, <clears throat> but, you know, come here. He gave me a big hug and says, Shabbat Shalom. Have a lovely Shabbos. Uh, summer love to your family. And that, that was it, you know. And it was, oh, you're a bit crazy, but you'll grow out of it. It was this sort of mentality but i always reflected on that and that if it if i had you know read the new testament instead of the dhammapada um or the Tao Te ching um it would have been a very different story um i i would have been sort of ostracized um ex- excluded i mean we don't really have the same idea of excommunication um in in judaism but there might have been some sort of equivalence mm. it would have been I mean made very explicit that I'm, I'm an outsider at that point. Um, but I noticed um, people like uh, Roger Kamenetz, who wrote a, a beautiful book, the, the Jew in the Lotus. Uh, I'm not sure if you've, you've heard of that book. Yes. Um, yes. Um, I mean, Roger is now, um, I'm sort of very proud to say, uh, quite a close friend, quite a close family friend as well. Uh, but at the time, everyone was saying, Elliot, you've got to read the Jew in the Lotus. It's about you. And I, I deliberately didn't read it for many years because everyone, you know, bit stubborn and everyone was telling me to read it and you know about this jewish buddhist phenomena and then i realized i was completely unoriginal um <laughs> so many people have been doing this in the 60s and 70s and 80s you know uh and that there weren't just uh so-called um jubus or bujus but there were also hindus uh ramdas was a wonderful example um of that um, I always felt Ram Das and I had, had quite interesting, similar backgrounds, both sort of social psychologists um, and sort of, uh, of course, he met his uh, guru, Neem Karoli Baba, and had these experiences. So I think one of my regrets was that I, um, I, I never got to meet him, although a, a story I told Steve Taylor recently was that I, I did dream of him the night he died. Uh, and we... we uh, I got to interview him in this dream, and then I, I woke up and found out he'd passed away. Mm. Uh, Steve loved that story, and he sort of wanted me to tell it for, I'm not sure if it's a, a book he's doing or an article, but he's, he's always writing something. But um, I, I gave him the, the full story. But that's, uh, that's 
kind of a, a lengthy digression. Right. Um, but again, that sort of there's plenty of people from Jewish backgrounds uh, who who went eastwards, and um, you know I found that mine was just one in in sort of a, a long tradition, uh, so to speak, um, of, of doing this. Well, so why don't we uh, turn our attention now to the uh, the book? See if I can uh, uh, the psychologization of Eastern spiritual traditions. I'd probably put an extra syllable in there, but um, that's that's fine. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm, there's a couple before we get into the meat of it. You know, there's a couple of levels of this that are interesting to me, just in light of the conversation we've just been having. And one is that as much as we speak about commodification of uh, uh, practice and mm. some and 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 Eastern tropes and spiritual tropes. I just find it interesting that the uh, one of the seminal imp- uh, impressions you had was uh, monkey and yeah. uh, and you know something that was uh, just a commodified, mass-produced. Oh, absolutely! And yeah. so, and so, it, it, what I appreciate about the book is that um, uh, you strike a you, you explore a topic, and you're not. I mean, it's it's part critique, but it's not really a uh, uh, a a critique at the, you know, in a negative way, it's just more like an exploration of this phenomenon. And Oh, I'm glad you thought that because that's really what I was striving for because I thought on my part it would be sort of hypocritical um, to sort of to to lay into this sort of commodification. I, I, you know, and I sort of recognize that most of my influence have been this kind of rather Disney-fied sort of forms of uh of eastern spirituality that that was my you know my formative encounters uh with these uh you know that and alan watts um mm. who i i talk about a fair amount and um you know alan watts was also a, a huge influence um as well and i've got an awful lot of uh respect time for his for his writings and his um his his talks and i, I think sometimes people that, that popularize um get something of a, a bad rap later they're seen as not being scholarly enough or academic um and i, I try to see them in the context of their of their time right um interestingly i didn't mention the <laughs> you know this is the thing when it's out in print you can't change it and you can't add anything but um i, I don't even think i mentioned journey to the west no um, you, i don't think that, you did. that would have been a, a wonderful thing to bring in in the um now I think of ways of improving it. Um, that would have been a great thing to put in, in when I'm talking about analytical yeah. psychology in terms of Taoism and, and Buddhism and archetypes, of course. But, uh, so so why don't you maybe describe uh, what you see yourself as doing with this book, and then we can talk a little bit about maybe some of the main, main themes, because I think this is it's certainly pertinent for our time now as we um, uh, are seeing the incursion of things like mindfulness, which you speak about quite yeah. a bit in the uh, common culture. Yeah. Well, um, I think back in 2010, I did the very first paper that that ever got noticed or ever got cited anywhere. Before then, I was just everything I was writing um, was going in, in a journal that I absolutely loved. It's the Transpersonal Psychology Review, the British Psychological Society's um, Transpersonal Psychology Section journal. Um, but everything was kind of just, was going in there and kind of going under the radar. Um, 
and um, I, I wrote this um, article about the psychologization of Buddhism. Um, I gave it a title. I think it was from the Bodhi tree to the analyst couch and into the MRI scanner. Um, and that was done for the annual review of critical psychology. And I suddenly noticed that this, this paper where I was talking about the psychologization of Buddhism, I was talking about sort of neoliberalism um, and the commodification, starting to sort of touch on those. And it was one, one of the first papers uh, to start looking at mindfulness in a more, in a more critical way. Uh, I think people like Ron Purser later on did a, did a much better job. Um, I really wish I'd come up with the term much mindfulness, uh, but <laughs> I didn't. I think uh, it was, uh, it was, it was probably um, uh, um, was it Halpern and, and, uh, mm. and Purser as well um, coming up with this, uh, with this term and that, the idea of McDonaldization um, was, was really interesting to me. And uh, I think people like Highland as well were um, sort of writing about it. And, um, but I sort of look back and back in 2010, that, that was one of the first um, to start looking at it in, in a more critical way. And then in 2017, I um, did a, a much more sort of critical paper that was more informed by uh, Purser and, and others um, looking at uh, mindfulness um, as this idea of, uh, I, I used uh, a phrase that one of my teachers, a, a Sri Lankan Theravadan Buddhist uh, teacher, um, Venerable Akarala Samita, um, who's based in, in Letchworth in the south um, of, of England. Uh, he told me this expression, you know, um, cutting the suit, um, oh, sorry, cutting the body to fit the suit, which I thought was, mm. that's a really interesting expression. Mm. To what extent are we, are we cutting the Buddha's body to fit this neoliberal suit? And uh, so I, I wrote this more, I'd say, left-leaning political um, uh, paper on um, the sort of psychology, again, psychologization of, of Buddhism. And as, as I'm writing it, pretty much as soon as I've, I've written it, I, I realize that it's kind of flawed. Um, that what I'm not acknowledging is that a lot of people in these Eastern indigenous practitioners of the Tibetan Buddhist tradition are themselves actively uh, looking to psychology um, as a language theory, as approaches to um, kind of articulate or re-articulate um, their traditions in ways that can maybe appeal to a more contemporary audience. Um, they are themselves looking to make these alliances, to, <clears throat> to make these connections. I don't think I brought that out clearly enough. And um, I, I certainly, I, I, I do, I correct that in this book. Um, so I think you had, um, oh, uh, the person that wrote um, Esoteric Theravada. Yeah, Kate Crosby. Yeah, her book is right behind me there I, I loved that book um and you know it, it reminded me of some of uh, donald lopez's wonderful work where he looks at this idea of you know how buddhism's been uh sort of modernized uh, uh mcmahon's book as well uh buddhist modernism was was you know very um influential as well 
Um, and all of these books, um, and Gombridge's work as well, looking at sort of Protestant Buddhism, um, I really should have paid more attention to indigenous attempts to, to modernize Buddhism. Um, and we've even got a family connection through my, um, through my uh, <clears throat> wife, um, the sort of, uh, one of one of the great uh, modernizers of, of Chinese Buddhism, um, so, uh, Tai Shu. Um, yeah. yeah, I've got that right. I hope. I yeah, I think, uh, I think that's right. Yeah, thank. Um, I'm, I'm always paranoid that I'll, I'll get the name wrong or I'll get the tone wrong. Um, I, I'm always getting <laughs> my tones corrected uh, by my wife. So you know, if I, you're um, lucky to have that as a resource. Yeah, yeah I'm, I, I'm lucky, but every every mistake gets sort of emphasized and sort of <laughs> underlined. So I was. I was I was scared to show her my book um, because she will find mistakes uh, and she will point them out and say, you know, you know, but, you know, with with uh, with Tai Shu, um, my wife's one of my wife's uncles uh, was one of his followers, one of the yeah. original disciples. So we, we got sort of got that family connection to humanistic Buddhism in China. And this led to me reading uh, some of, of Tai Shu's uh, works, the ones that have been translated, and um, looking at the way he saw um, Buddhism as being the superior form of psychology. Um, you know, as far as he was concerned, I think uh, which one was particularly the Yogacara school, uh, he saw this as like high psychology, that this really was so much more advanced than what we were doing um, in the West, because um, in the West we're just doing psychology, but this was psychology with a view to uh, soteriology. Um, it led to liberation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what are we doing in the West? This is a point that I, I make um, quite a lot, hopefully not excessively, that in the West, to a large extent, our psychology is more of a passive study of mind and behavior. Um, and most psychotherapy is, is more geared towards um, healthier forms of coping, adaptation, um, or uh, sort of the buzz terms that are going around at the moment um, are uh, well-being and uh, what's the other term that I, I hear an awful lot? Uh, making ourselves more resilient. So yeah. sort of resilience, well-being. Um, you know, this is a far cry, you could say, from ideas of awakening or, or liberation. Right. Um, so th- this was a point, I think it's a point I made quite early on um, in the 2010 paper but i really started to develop it more um in in this book and other other talks yeah there's uh, a there's a couple things that uh, just along the lines of the uh the complexity of the indigenous practitioners modifying the message that you mentioned you mm-hmm. um you talk about uh vivekananda um yes, at, yeah. at the world conference of religions in 1893 in his presentation of uh, uh the his Vedantic teaching as a scientific uh, psychology, and mm. and everyone ate that up. But his teacher Ramakrishna was a, a crazy mystic. I mean, he was like a, yeah. a brilliant mystic, and he worshipped yes. he worshipped Kali. Yes, and yes. and Vivekananda consciously downplayed that yeah. uh, uh, because he was tuning the message uh, and. And didn't have a problem with that. I mean, he was basically speaking to people in a way that they, they could hear and understand. If he led mm-hmm. with Kali and, and the worship of Kali and the, and the dark, deep mother, 
oh, that would have terrified people. Yeah. I mean, the Tigers. I mean, just look at Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom right. for that hatchet job that Hollywood did <laughs> right. uh, and then, on, the, on Hinduism. Yeah. But the other example you mentioned that uh, uh, <clears throat> um, surprised me because I hadn't thought about it in this way, but it was, it was GT Suzuki and, and yes. that, that, you, that his so much of the early sort of American or mid mid 20th century American, uh, you know, receiving of Zen was, was influenced by his work, yes, but, but yes. his, but his work arose in the Meiji restoration. That's right. That's where, right. where, where he's already, already there's a turn towards the West in terms yeah. of framing. And, and I, I know there, there's like some of the philosophers like Nishida Kataro. I don't know if you've read him, uh, uh, an analytic philosopher, but a Zen practitioner, uh, the founder of the Tokyo school or sorry, the Kyoto school of, uh, philosophy. He configured and used the language of analytic Western analytic philosophy that, to, yes. to talk about, uh, uh, the state of pure experience. And, mm -hmm. and so it's already, there's this, there's this Westernization in a sense, the That's tools right. that are going on at that period of time. So anything that comes out of that is well, already, you, you should, you should point out, uh, I mean, not Kataro, but, but the Meiji restoration was the 19th century. So quite a, yeah. quite a while ago. Right. I mean, it, it was a uh, mid, yeah, mid, uh, 19th century, but I think it, continued into the 20th century right, right, right. And, and inheriting that tradition of modernism and modernizing right, right. So. yeah so so it's a so already and then and then of course you know you allude to the Theravadan tradition and, and we had kate crosby on the show yeah, uh, a, a number of weeks yeah. ago where there's this clear picture it's it's not in some ways, in some ways, this modernization is a response to colonialism, and in other ways, it's not exactly. It's more of a response mm. within the societies themselves to people who are educated in a modern way, reflecting yeah. on their traditions. And so, yeah. it's it's not it's not as simple as Westerners devouring everything. Uh, yeah, you know, it, or or selected things, right? Yeah, it, and it, that's the mistake I think I made in some of those earlier papers <clears throat> that I, I, I a little bit sort of blinkered or a lot blinkered when it comes to what's actually going on in the East um, at this time. I mean, if we look at Taishu and the, the Chinese intellectuals uh, that he's, you know, the, um, you know, at that time uh, he's looking at anarchism, he's looking at um, these you know, sort of a Western thought and political thought. And, you know, his idea is if we don't modernize, um, we're not going to attract these intellectuals where, you know, Buddhism will not survive. It'll be thought of as a, a religion for the old or for the superstitious. Mm. And I want to show people, um, sort of the Chinese people, that this is a religion of the future for the future. Um, so even his idea of, uh, in some ways, Taishu is quite traditional and uh, refers a lot to the idea of the pure land, particularly the uh, pure land of Maitreya Buddha, the Buddha of the future. And, um, uh, you know, on the other hand, he's trying to show how uh, in the 20th century, technology is, um, is going to advance to such a point that our world becomes like a pure land. The idea that the, the magical language of, uh, of the pure land in Buddhism um, will be realized to some extent in our, in our technological age. So I thought that was a fascinating um, blending, really, uh, right. of, 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 uh, of um, 
you know, from, from, from Tai Chi. And you see similar uh, things. It's something I, I kind of fixed on um, a bit sometimes where we use technological language um, to describe these sort of ancient teachings. So there was, there was one I was always fascinated by, uh, Professor Robert Thurman. I don't know if you've had him uh, on the show yet. We, we haven't. We'd love to, but uh, it no, he's, 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 he's wonderful. Um, and um, I, I love the way he uh, translated Kala Chakra, um, you know, this central sort of tantric Buddhist teaching. The Kala Chakra was um, time machine. I was like, what? <laughs> the time machine? Um, and, you know, the idea that chakra could be uh, machine or, or computer and, um, you know, this uh, idea of, uh, of sort of the Buddhist master as the psychonaut, uh, the navigator of inner space. Again, I thought I'd created this term, uh, psychonaut, back in, um, was it 2010, 2011? Uh, I had a course at Leeds Beckett University on psychonautics. Um, we had the UK Institute for Psychonautics. And uh, I thought I'd created this term, but no, Robert Thurman had already in the Bado Todol, the Tibetan book of the uh, dead or the in-between states, he talked about these uh, Tibetan masters as, as psychonauts, masters of, uh, you know, being able to uh, direct, project their, their consciousness um, to explore these realms of, of, of inner space, um, you know, masters of the mind, mariners of the mind, mm. um, sailors of psyche uh you know he really kind of um uh come up with that first but it was it's really interesting the way um you know if you listen to robert thurman talk he's very happy to sort of to jump into things like quantum physics and such and always gives this sense that um that, that the tibetan buddhists had this kind of this, this proto-science that they they kind of had a handle on this already um and i think this this kind of this approach goes back to people like uh was it uh Fritjof capra was it the the Tao of physics yeah the Tao of physics i think that was that, one of the earliest ones wasn't and then it? there was another one the dancing wuli masters that yeah. uh, tried to uh make those equations so yeah i've kind of been wary of that approach myself. yeah i i uh, i have as well but i have yeah. a background i have a background in physics so it's, it's right it's, See, and I, I do not. <laughs> yeah. Well, the the issue for me is not so much the uh, analogies is is that uh, the implication that physics is somehow discovering these uh, ancient truths. I think mm -hmm. is uh, overstated because uh, the paradigms that drive most physicists uh, is a hardcore materialism. Oh, absolutely. Is, yeah. And 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 it's just not. They're not. They're not discovering anything along those lines. If, if anything, they're highly blinkered uh, uh, in terms of uh, what I'd call transcendental possibility. Yeah, they want to put the nail in that coffin. Yeah, but uh, kind of on that topic, there's a there's a framing I want to get into with you on this, which is uh, we uh, we use this. Uh, it, it comes up in other traditions. I think it even comes up in the vertical in the uh, Buddhist tradition. But it's the the distinction of the vertical versus the horizontal domain. Right. Yeah. And and you at one point in your discussion of uh, Buddha psychologist, I think, and you're you're kind of teasing apart how modern psychology tends not to do what Buddhism does. You use a distinction which is similar in spirit, which is a trans, uh, transcognitive versus metacognitive. 
Right. And yep. and metacognitive is like having a story about your stories right. and operating from your story about your stories, whereas transcognitive is operating from a uh, numeral realm that is, uh, isn't informed by story. Hmm. And, and so the, in a way I, I felt like the notion of the vertical was represented in the, the transcognitive and, That's right. uh, and yeah. the horizontal is, is still in the realm of the metacognitive hmm. and when I look at some of the critiques, you know, of uh, mindfulness, for instance, uh, mm -hmm. I think there's a reasonable critique about the commodification of uh, a spiritual practice that mm -hmm. uh, in, in the form of like, if I'm selling uh, stress relief, if I'm selling relaxation, if I'm st selling, uh, you know, corp to corporate leaders that I can make my workers more effective cogs in the machine, yeah. that that's a absolutely a horizontal consideration and has mm -hmm. absolutely no uh, intrinsic interest in uh, uh, a vertical uh, domain. But in some ways, and you touch on this a little bit, you asked this question, which I appreciate it because I, I haven't seen this question asked in other contexts on the secularization of Buddhism, but it's that even engaged Buddhism, uh, there's a critique that says, if your focus is on uh, what you're doing in the world, uh, if you're if you're measuring your enlightenment by the exterior form, then you're mm. in the horizontal domain. You're not in the vertical domain. Mm. And you 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 ask that question. You don't dwell there because I mean, there's it's a uh, it's a very difficult place to dwell because yeah. there's a lot of uh, force to challenge uh you know uh questioning engaged buddhism these days but mm. but the the there's a tendency to minimize minimize the noumenal and to prioritize the expressed you know results of let us say awakened uh, action and to say if you're awakened you must do these things and that seems, and it seems again that there, there, there's just, just this inexorable tendency to, to go into the horizontal and not focus on this vertical realm. Yeah, I am absolutely fascinated by that tension. And, you know, some of my, uh, some, some of the groups, I mean, I, I, this almost turned into a chapter in, in itself, but uh, looking at humanistic Buddhism, engaged Buddhism, um, so, for instance, in Manchester, I, I spent quite a bit of time with uh, Fogwan Shan, which is uh, quite a well-known humanistic Buddhist organization. And um, again, that in, in Taiwan, it received quite a lot of, of criticism uh, sometimes for being too, too horizontal, uh, for um, sort of busying itself in kind of worldly affairs and activity um, and uh, not spending enough time in terms of um, uh, cultivation, um, and so again, it struggled in its in its life in Taiwan with this uh, with this tension between outreach being humanistic and um, sort of the the path to awakening or liberation. And I, I think it it's kind of bridged um, by this idea or ideal of the of the bodhisattva. Uh, who I think beautifully in, in the iconography explores, explains um, this, uh, this tension, but seems not to experience it as a tension, but 
uh, embodies it in a more effortless way that one foot is reaching, stepping into the world, the imminent one foot is in that lotus posture, transcendent. Um, and that, again, maybe there is, you know, Buddhism is called the middle way. How do we find that middle way between imminence and transcendence, between being uh, engaged or, or disengaged or knowing when uh, to disengage? Um, but it's, it's one that I'm not able to resolve. Probably the reason I didn't spend too much time thinking on it is because it's something that I am still thinking about. And I might not, I don't know if anyone will ever get to any kind of resolution um, because it's, you know, those accusations, you're, you're, if you become too engaged, um, if you become too sort of obsessed with, you know, what, what could be called the red dust of the world, you know, prob- there are always going to be problems. There's always going to be injustice. That's why it's samsara. Um, you know, you, if you're trying to make samsara into a, a, a pure land, a pure realm, uh, you're going to have those challenges. Um, you're, maybe that's um, just going to lead to more dukkha, unsatisfactoriness. Um, but, you know, uh, Taishu often said, you know, it's trying to make this realm into uh, a pure land. And so one's, one's practice uh, becomes that. And it's something I do explore a bit um, in the book. And this is, I suppose, when the, the, the tension really comes out, uh, when certain uh, Buddhist teachers are seen as being um, very contemporary or, or seen as being woke. Yes. Uh, and the difference between the woke and the awakened, I hadn't, um, you know, I, 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 that's something I wanted to explore. I actually wanted to explore it in a lot more uh depth and detail but i i, I had a, had a word limit um so i you know uh, i couldn't explore but, that in as much but maybe one day um well you know it's, it's that 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 you do bring that up and i appreciate the uh in the the book that that um exploring that tension uh mm-hmm. that they're 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 very different things and it is a that absolutely i i presume Maybe the UK is like this in America right now. Uh, uh, the the wave of woke in Buddhism is is very strong, and mm. we, we we certainly have more mystic friends who sort of decry this because they see this uh, uh, that it becomes the center of gravity of a lot of uh, yeah. uh, Buddhist practice. And and at the same time, I mean, I think you. What I appreciated again about your look at that is that you're not throwing the baby out with the bathwater in the sense like it's not like it's not like everything that uh, a woke sensibility is talking about is is artifice. I mean, it's like there is something to be said about lived experience, embodied experience, and context, and uh, and how that informs you. But at the same time, uh, that's not that's also not the same as uh, the tr- transcendental state that's being pointed to uh with awakening mm-hmm. and and i and it's interesting to me that you you try to affect a middle way between those two and um i tried <laughs> uh, well uh, yeah the problem <clears throat> the problem is that the uh um uh in a way the woke side tends to be have, have more of a uh, an activist 
mentality like mm. this is the right way of be so if you don't if you this if you're is not the way yeah yeah so that if you're not a hundred percent you know it's like i'm not sure that a middle way would be so much appreciated on that side whereas yeah it, it would be seen as a being an apologist or a being yeah a, cop outs or, or a uh, giving into the uh um uh the 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 power the existing power structures um yeah. and then awakening in that context is seen as somehow a, as a retreat from engaging in this in the the problems of the world yeah and this is another one that i i kind of keep coming back to i remember um you know speaking to some of uh ajahn chah's um <clears throat> sort of students some of that like first generation second generation that uh studied in in thailand and when i was thinking of becoming a monk and i uh, i forget which monk it was now i was chatting to um but i said you know isn't this the danger that people see that we're just we're running away from it all and he, uh, he was very open and honest he says well yeah that's exactly what we're doing because it's samsara we're supposed to you know have you seen it out there why why wouldn't you run away from it to this and there's a sense that uh, in a very real sense um that you know for, for some for some traditionalists and this understanding clearly is is there as well and we need to acknowledge it that it that it's there the purpose is to bypass it um the purpose is to go through it and beyond <clears throat> uh, now i know from a from a more western psychological perspective they say well no no you have to deal with it you have to you know we talk about process we talk about sort of managing and integration and shadow work and you know this um but you know there are some understandings uh that would say no if you if you do that you're just going to get lost in the mire of thoughts and opinions and this is it's another samsaric trick you know um so he said no we are we are uh running away from it but he said in running away from it we kind of run into it as well so you can't really escape it he warned me about this he says if you're thinking of escaping sort of politics and hierarchy you know you'll you'll find it in the sangha as well inevitably and sometimes it's in more subtle forms um and maybe um in, in that sense it seems uh um even even more of a trap <laughs> you know so you know you i, I remember uh sort of ajahn menindo saying to me at, at one point you know about fin- it was so important to me that i finished the phd and he was saying uh i'm not telling you not to but you know why is this this feeling that unless you're Dr. Elliot Cohen, you, you, you won't be enough? It says, because, you know, if you're not enough without it, you'll never be enough with it either, just so you know that. And he was right. Um, that was about sort of uh, a sense of status, a sense of, of, of pride as well. Um, but then, you know, then there's that sense of within the monastic tradition being an ajahn or being a full bhikkhu um, rather than anagarika or you know how long you've been ordained for relates to your seniority you know you you find it in in, in more sort of subtle forms um, as well and uh, something that also I, I didn't notice at the time and only noticed later was um, issues of of inequality uh, within the sangha particularly in the uh, in the Theravadan tradition, the fact that for uh, many in that tradition, uh, for many um, female adherent practitioners, uh, they can't get that full bhikkhuni mm-hmm. uh, ordination. Um, 
and you know that that was uh, that was an eye opener. And many would say, from from that woke perspective, um, it was my privilege that blinded me to that struggle uh, in terms of what was going on. But then it led to other discussions. You know, was the Buddha a feminist? Uh, does it even make sense to use that 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 term? Uh, with all its context and connotations and go back 2,500 years. And, uh, because you will see some saying that the Buddha was such more of a feminist, that he was quite egalitarian, that he let women into, uh, into the Sangha. Um, but if you look at our, our concerns, our uh, big burning issues today, um, it's, it's very difficult to, to say what, you know, what the Buddha, you know, a little question, what would the Buddha do? What would the Buddha say um, in relation to things like uh, transgender rights, activism, pronouns? Um, you know, I, I talk a, bit, a little bit about this in regards to um, gender when I tell the story of, uh, of Tara, um, the Bodhisattva Tara drama. Um, she's just on the cusp of awakening and her... Uh, sort of monastic uh, disciples say, oh, this is great. You know, now you can come back as a man and uh, become a, a Buddha, become awakened. She basically... Um, Rip, rips them a new one. <laughs> yeah, she, rips, she compassionately rips them a new one and says, you know, um, you know, anyone can become a Buddha. And, you know, few are the ones that do it in female form, so I will become awakened in the female form. And... Um, Again, I always loved uh, Silcha Malian's uh, work, like uh, Women of Wisdom. Um, what was the latest one called? Wisdom Rising? Something close yeah, to that. Yeah, yeah, Wisdom Rising. It's just, it's just up there. Because um, uh, one of the things that drew me to the um, Tibetan Buddhist school, the Kaju school, uh, the very first time I met Lama Jampataya, I said, you know, can you teach me Chud? Uh, this this cutting through this practice, I really like Machig Labdron these these teachings from the um, from the Kaju school. And he said, "Well, I'm sorry to tell you that, you know, no, <laughs> you you'll need to do Nandro. You'll need to do the hundred thousand prostrations, the hundred thousand recitations of the uh, um, Vajrasattva mantra. You'll need to do a hundred thousand Guru Yoga recitations, visualizations, offering the mandala." He says, "You know, that comes first. Um, and that, again, I suppose, gave me that respect for a more traditional perspective that these teachings, like, uh, you can't just have them. You've got to earn them. You've got to sort of stick with them. You've got to sort of demonstrate that sort of commitment. Well, it's, a, it's creating a context within which they Very, can, they can the, work. It's the context, you know, which some people throw away and say, you know, that's, you know, sometimes the secular Buddhist movements which you know i understand where they're coming from um i do have a deep abiding respect um of of stephen bachelor of martin bachelor they were some of my first teachers at gaia house in devon mm. newton abbott back in the 90s mm. um i i did love um uh, buddhism without beliefs that was an early <clears throat> um book but um i did end up going down the more sort of traditional um Pass um, largely due to teachers like Lama Jampatai, who stress the importance of context. That this is a lineage um, right. that you you need to have that lineage um, from teacher to student, from teacher from guru to chela. You know you need you need to have that uh, because it's not 
authentic without that. Is, and is it, that, is, that stuck with yeah. me. Sorry, yeah, I was frozen then a bit. Yeah, no, yeah but, and same, same on our yeah, side, too. Yeah, I think too. we had a little hiccup there. But I, I, I just wanted to mention uh, with Stephen Batchelor, um, uh, we, we had him on the show many years ago, and um, uh, he's a, a friend of a mutual friend of ours. And mm-hmm. it's interesting with him, though, that he studied pretty seriously in oh, yeah. uh, the uh, Korean Zen tradition. The, the, That's right. Uh, uh, the Chokyo uh, uh, tradition. And in a Tibetan tradition. So that's right. Yeah. In a way, uh, I, I just thought of this, that when I, when I look at, um, uh, when we talked about context, you know, for him to then to secularize Buddhism is a little bit like someone like Piet Mondrian, who was a brilliant, almost photographic painter who could paint a scene mm-hmm. with, uh, then, then going to the abstract. And, and, yeah. and you know, it's like, artists who had all this talent and then did uh, like a, a, even a Picasso, but then, then went to a very abstracted style, have a kind of context that someone who tries to imitate the product of that style doesn't have. And yeah. I want, that's where I wonder with like a secularization of Buddhism, if um, that's where it's not so much the person like a Stephen Batchelor who is bringing this to the fore. It's the people after him who receive it, who can, right who don't have that deeper context, they almost necessarily have to <clears throat> notch it down into a more of a psychologicalized uh, uh, practice. But remember what, what he, what, uh, you know, I pressed him, uh, Mr. Bachelor, on, on the point. Um, and he, his response was, well, it seems to work for these people. Yeah. That, that's a, that was sufficient, um, yeah. you know, yeah. justification for, for, for what he's doing. I don't know that he has given thought to the point you're making, Stuart, about the the um, what what his students will do with the context that he create that he's creating for them to right. uh, uh, learn Buddhism or something like Buddhism. I always got the sense um, that with, um, with with Stephen Batchelor uh, that. For him, there was a sense of liberation, a real sense of um, the lifting of, of restrictions uh, from that movement to Tibetan Buddhism to, to Korean Zen, that finally he was allowed to doubt, to question. Mm. Um, and for him, this always ties into the existentialist philosophers as well. Um, I remember him uh, asking for help uh, in an essay I was doing as an undergraduate um, when I had to do an, an essay on existentialism and psychology, and he was he was very very helpful. I was very um, very grateful. Uh, but I always saw this sense of liberation and, and moving to the secular. I saw from his perspective was almost another step in that sense of being liberated from um, when when form and structure becomes maybe a little bit too restrictive or it's seen as being sort of more ossified mm-hmm. um and you know if if, if this is a, a culture of awakening i think this is the kind of language that um uh stephen bachelor might might prefer um and that's you know that the emphasis shouldn't really be on him but it needs to be uh, almost like this sense of sangha or community like what 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 will come but 
I don't know, for, for me, um, I think Lama Jampa Thai was, was very influential in, in teaching me this sort of respect for the, for the culture. I remember trying to learn, I'm awful with languages. Um, hopefully that doesn't come across in the book. Um, but, uh, you know, I remember trying to learn Tibetan and trying to read um, the Tibetan just to, just to get that sense of, of, of cultural context. And I never liked the term cultural baggage. I never really, I never really believed it. And there's an expression I use with students sometimes, you know, like um, before you dismiss something as cultural baggage, try and remember the last time you, you lost your luggage at the airport, that sense of panic, you know, you need those bags. Our stuff is in them, you know? And I think it's, it's that sense of, of context, of continuity, of, of, of lineage um, <clears throat> that, that can be, can be lost. Um, I do remember in my early days with the, uh, with the UK Buddhist society, which is one of the, the, the oldest Buddhist societies in Europe. I think it was, uh, people like Christmas Humphreys that, uh, that, that founded that. Um, and I spent some of my early days with that, uh, group and going to their meetings. It was much more of an ecumenical kind of blending. They, they have teachers from different traditions coming and teaching, uh, but I remember um, sort of saying at the time, you know, we've, we've got to be very careful. We should see ourselves as custodians um, of these traditions and shouldn't be in a rush to make our own um, sort of British Buddhism. Um, and that this, this process usually takes centuries. If we look in, at China, sort of when, when, you know, it's not some centuries in, until maybe the, the Tiantai school um, or uh, sort of, the flower ornament traditions start to create a more Chinese form uh, of, of Buddhism uh, that it kind of mixes and merges with certain Confucian principles, ideas, certain Taoist principles and ideas. And, and you get a kind of a, um, a more naturally growing, emerging sort of syncretic um, tradition, but, but not in the sort of, uh, I think sometimes we're in a rush to synthesize, to bring stuff together, to, uh, to to put our mark on it before we've truly understood it, before we've truly integrated it. I think that's a very important point, and and um, and it's an implicit critique of of our rushing, of all the rushing we do, and all the yeah. rushed things we do in our lives. And uh, we're living in the age, aren't we? This is. Uh, yeah. I remember uh, one of the first books, uh, first books by Alan Watts I ever read, uh, was the Tao of Philosophy, and in it he talks about the Kali Yuga. He says that it's it's not really Kali in terms of dark age; it's the age of speed, and that's really what's going to kill us. Hmm. Uh, and if we think of like the technological age that we live in, the digital age, this um, this rushing, this rushing, um, the quick fix, even in therapy, you know, this takes too long. We need we need quicker. And um, although I I sort of um, you know I, I a lot of my early training in psychology was in cognitive. Um, you know, I spent uh, I was an examiner on a course that sort of specialized in CBT, a cognitive behavioral therapy. I think one of yeah. the things that I, I was struck by was that kind of information processing, algorithmic sort of language 
um, in it that, you know, it, it's kind of a product itself of the digital age. This doesn't take as long as, say, psychoanalysis or more person-centered. Uh, these are sort of short mm. therapies. Uh, mm. you, 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 do your home, you do your homework, you find the underlying mechanism, you identify the negative automatic thoughts. And it, it sort of seemed to me almost that we're looking at the, um, the uh, circuitry of stress or the, right. uh, the, um, the sort of algorithms of anxiety or the networks of neurosis uh, that we're, we're thinking about. You are about really it. into alliteration. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, it's coming through again, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Algorithm, anxiety, network yeah, yeah, of neurosis. I mean, it's just I'll, trippingly I'll from your tongue. I'll have to take a deep breath. I'll have to take a deep breath. You know what? But, uh, my but, enthusiasm. No, no, no. Don't, don't do that. But, um, but I want to know. Those are possible if, book titles as well. Maybe. Yeah, well, of course. <laughs> um, uh, but I, I want to know um, if you see transpersonal psychology that you're so um, enmeshed within, as oh, I yeah. understand it, um, if that has a different response than, than I don't know if quick fixes uh, would be the term to apply to some of these other forms of psychology. You applied that, but I think, in what you fix. just said. What? Yeah. Objective fix. Yeah. But anyway, um, but does transpersonal psychology, do you think tend towards a more relaxed approach towards time? I would hope so. I would hope we've learnt, um, you know, transpersonal psychology begins in sort of the late 60s, early 70s. Um, I would say it probably begins much, much earlier. I, I looked to those early wisdom traditions as like the origins, uh, our inspiration, um, but I, I think if you look at what um, Maslow was was doing um, in his later works and like the father reaches of human nature, it was a kind of a, a slowing down, a softening, a movement towards a more naturalistic, humanistic or Taoistic, he uses the term mm -hmm. um, a lot. I, I like the idea that transpersonal psychology was almost called Taoistic um, psychology. Um, and I was kind of surprised with, with how much he was looking to Taoism when he was writing about science. And well, this is something I didn't know about that your book did inform me about that I had no idea about yeah. how influential Taoism was to some of these folks. No, I, I didn't until I started um, reading them in, more closely, um, particularly sort of like the, the psychology of science. I thought, my goodness, there's so many references to Taoism here. And he really sees this, uh, this, this softening, this more natural. I started to see in his language as well, sort of like the peak experience and the sort of the troughs and the nadirs, kind of a, uh, almost a, a, a geography of, of awakening or a geography of human potential um, in, in his writings. And um, I, I saw this idea of a, a, a softening of science. Um, I'm not sure he quite uses it in, in, in that term, but I, I use that idea from the Tao Te Ching, you know, that the, uh, the soft is the disciple of life and the, the, the hard and the rigid is, is the disciple of death. So when people say like hard science, in my head, it sort of goes back to this, well, we need a, a science that's a bit soft and it's responsive and it's more uh, alive and enlivening, um, that it's, um, uh, that it is, is, is more responsive to, 
uh, to human experience and takes account of human potential. And I often point out to to students that it's it's uh, yes, these mindfulness based approaches, mindfulness based stress reduction, mindfulness based cognitive therapy, acceptance commitment therapy, um, uh, dialectical behavioural therapy. Uh, yes, these might all be considered that third wave of cognitive therapies, but meditation was, if you like, the first wave of transpersonal psychology back in the 1960s. These were the first psychologists that were taking meditation, contemplative approaches seriously, um, that were going back, that were rediscovering William James, that sort of wonderful uh, thinker that gave us the idea of the stream of consciousness, uh, who took religion seriously and mystical experience seriously. Um, you know, one of the first psychonauts i might say um mm. interestingly and i was i was delighted to see stanislav Grof, um who I, i've still not met still not had any conversation with but i think we'd get on famously i was delighted to see that he'd taken the term psychonaut <laughs> and uh you know the way of the psychonaut i think was one of his more recent sort mm. of encyclopedias of uh, inner experience inner voyages so I'm, I'm delighted to see that word coming into more or currency, because I, I must admit, when I first proposed, and we, we had the psychonautics module uh, running at Leeds Beckett University, um, I was sort of uh, called into the dean's office, and he said, "What psychonautics? Is this about drugs and psychedelics? Yeah. Are you doing this with our students?" You know, what I, I, I had that sort of moment of, "Oh, am I going to go the way of Richard Alpert and Timothy Leary? Am I going to get kind of..." kicked out you know so no we're, we're not I'm, I'm looking at it in a much more naturalistic way um you know i'm, I'm looking at uh, yogic practice i'm looking at meditation um at the time i had very little time for um psychedelics um and it, it wasn't until much later when i um met professor nutt um when i met uh, ben uh, no i didn't actually meet, meet ben sessa but it was it, it was his work uh, on the psychedelic renaissance and, and others uh, working in that area that um, I, I saw that they're, you know, that, that, that they're serious um, and started to consider to what extent psychedelics or entheogens might have a place um, in the study of, of the transpersonal um, and, and certainly recognizing I mean, transpersonal started before my time, but uh, I think Professor, um, is it Rick or Richard Tarnas, um, wrote Cosmos and Psyche and uh, The Passion of the West, Western Psyche. I can't remember the name of the book. I've got it here. The Passion, the Passion of the Western Mind. That was it. Um, I, I, do, I do love his works. And I do remember him saying at one of our conferences a few years ago, uh, which caught me off guard. He says, without psychedelics, there wouldn't have been any transpersonal psychology. I, I couldn't, at the time, I took umbrage at that and thought, well, what? You know, it's, it's not all about psychedelics. It's not, you know. Um, but for many, that was their, their way in. Um, and, you know, recognizing that. And I talk a little bit in, in my book about sometimes the conflation uh, between the East and psychedelics. Yeah. And um, one thing I, I didn't, talk about because i didn't want to upset or offend too many people or the wrong people or the right people um is the amount of uh the use of hindu and buddhist iconography on drug paraphernalia 
So the use of arm symbols on bongs or Ganesha, um, you know, or some brands of cannabis called Buddha yeah. um, or, you know, that, that, <laughs> you know, that, that conflation, which is, um, you know, or, or the use of the yin yang symbol on, on, on bongs or, you know, um, I remember my, my first time in, in California was a real eye opener. Uh, I met one of my first Californian Taoists and he had Wu Wei was his number plate. And, uh, <laughs> I, you know, I said, well, so, so you, you remember any Taoist schools? He's like, no, nah, no, nah, this is like mostly just kind of smoke pot and do my own thing. Wu Wei, man, Wu Wei. But I wasn't it, uh, was it Swami Satchidananda, the yoga teacher that was at oh, Woodstock? Yes. I yes. mean, <laughs> so it's, it's uh, again, there, there's a co-participation in all of that. Um, Sometimes, yeah. And not that he was doing drugs, but he was, oh. he, he was, uh, uh, his image was, is conflated with that whole movement. And um, yeah. I guess the Beatles as well, yeah. you know, the, the time that they discovered psychedelics sort of overlapped with when they discovered uh, Maharishi Yogi, the transcendental meditation. And that's when, um, um, oh, why has his name left my... Right, he studied sitar with Ravi Shankar. Uh, he was the quiet. Oh, one. oh George, George Harrison. Hey, George Harrison. There yeah. we go. I don't know why yeah. that name uh, sort of disappeared, but um, you know, he was he was pretty serious. Um, yeah. You know, as as a, as a practitioner and uh, um, as as a student. Um, I, I have to say that uh, I I was bemused by the the prominence you give Theodore Rosek's The Making of a Counterculture, which is the book I read when it first came out. I'm old enough to be able yeah. to say that, uh, and 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 I was just surprised at, at uh, well, it was a it was a blast from the past for me. Did I overdo one. it? No, no, you didn't. <laughs> but but I, but I mean, it was for a time considered influential at the time, and the yeah. fact that you, you that you are focusing that you focus as much as you do on it because um, you speak about it at one point and then later uh, resurrect that. Uh, yeah, bring it back. I think it's Theodore Rojak himself that I was kind of fascinated by mm -hmm. um, and admired. And the fact that he was one of the pioneers of eco-psychology, which I, I bring out again. Um, I, I love his uh, idea of the voice of the earth. And it, it struck mm -hmm. me that this is what um, Taoist cultivators were really trying to tune into and uh, start to hear. Um, and um, so I, I thought it was a fascinating figure and mm. um, and that he was writing at the time. I think one of the things I loved about his book, The Making of the Counterculture, is that he's writing at the time. And, uh, you know, um, people like uh, Alan Watts are saying, you know, this is the book. If you want to know what's going on, um, this is the one to read. And, um, you know, I, I, I sort of uh, discovered it in a kind of roundabout way. I mean, my, my mum... Was a hippie. This is dedicated to her memory. Uh, she was a proper hippie. She was a flower child. I think my mm. uh, dad was a part of the British sort of scene, um, which was sort of more more of the Beatles and that Mersey sound. And uh, and my, my dad was probably more of a beatnik. Uh, he was listening to like the Dizzy Gillespie and the Charlie Parker and the jazz. And uh, um, and it's probably through them that I, I got interested in in that, that side of things as well. And, uh, started reading 
Jack Kerouac and uh, Allen Ginsberg, another famous Jewish Buddhist. Um, <laughs> he started with Chogyam Trungpa, didn't he? Yeah, he was yeah. very, uh, very much part of that that tradition. I remember Lama Jampatai also uh, was, was uh, it was pretty much through him, actually, I think. Yeah, it was actually through him that I kind of discovered Allen Ginsberg because uh, Lama Jampatai came to Tibetan Buddhism through the beats, mm. uh, through Kerouac, okay. through, through Ginsberg. And, you know, so that more kind of popularizing <clears throat> side of it led to a very sincere, authentic engagement. And that's one of the things that I kind of recognize that, you know, it might be David Carradine and maybe some of the shameful legacy of Yellowface in, in, in Hollywood and uh, Kung Fu or Orientalist tropes in the dubbing of Monkey um, and part of the BBC. But this can lead to um, authentic encounters and uh, sort of immersing yourself in these in these traditions. Um, it's, it's my hope, certainly, that um, transpersonal psychology, certainly in, as the emerging British and European traditions as I see them, um, start to connect more with those wisdom traditions um, through authentic dialogue, through sort of deep listening, um, through slow growing together. I love that that expression uh, that Slade yeah. uses. So I'm, I'm curious uh, in, in the the question of the merging of the psychological and the spiritual. Um, mm. uh, you know, our our background is more in a uh, uh, tradition that is uh, related to the Gurdjieff work, uh, the, oh, the, right, fourth, okay. the fourth way work, and yeah. we also and there's some influence of the Sufic work there. Um, there's a teacher in the U.S. Uh, whose uh, writing name is A. H. Almas. Um, I don't know if you run across him, but he did not yet. <clears throat> he did work that was interesting in that he took uh, uh, he wrote a series of books, uh, probably ten, twenty, or probably twenty or twenty years ago. Twenty probably. years ago, that where he took object relations theory, <clears throat> uh, which was very very detailed uh, analytic uh, yeah. uh, depiction of the formation of the ego, That's and the then and, sort of <clears throat> yeah, and then he added to that uh, the, an understanding of essence, which is a Sufic and a fourth way notion of the original being, the original self that we start out with and as the ego forms, it kind of uh, covers over such that the, the essence doesn't receive as much direct information from the universe and uh, its growth can be stunted without some sort of, uh, you know, inter, inter, you know, practice or something like that to start to make the ego more porous. But by bringing these things together, he, he then creates this, uh, uh, heavy. I mean, I have problems with it because it, it's brilliant, and yet it's also I don't know that it's particularly useful because it's it's like almost giving too much of the answer for students, and thus making their minds sort of create sets of expectations of what their practice would uh, uh, unveil. But he does give this accounting that, and his logic is that there's a lot of good work that psychology has done in looking at par- portions of the operation of the mind. It just needs to be spiritualized, or, or this, uh, right. this 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 element that is missing from it, which is the transcendental, or a the numinous, or a a, yeah. a a nature of being that goes beyond the uh, psychological functioning. And when you bring that together, there's actually this uh, uh, powerful uh, template for a, a basis for a, a spiritual practice. 
I don't know yeah. if I believe it or not, but that's that. I, I've just it's that's one of the more sophisticated versions of psychologicalization of the of uh, yeah. uh, the spirit process or the, the the spiritual growth process that I've seen. Yeah, you, you make some really interesting points there, and I, I suppose like some of this goes back to when I started to study Vedanta. Uh, we had this reading group um, in Manchester. And uh, the first part was studying Sanskrit, and then they moved on to uh, Vedanta. And I remember one of the Swamis that led that class. Um, I, I was one of the very few non-Indians uh, there. And he said, oh, what brings you here? And he says, oh, I'm, I'm a studying Vedanta. He says, oh, uh, what, what do you do? I said, I'm a psychologist. He goes, oh, me too. Uh, Atmavidya, we study um, stuff, but we go deeper. Um, he says, you're studying the waves and I'm trying to study and understand the depths. Uh, and I thought that was really interesting. And so one of the things that I'm actually uh, really interested in is how people from these traditions um, reimagine psychology mm-hmm. that they, they, they come into it and they say, well, actually, no, this is what psychology is. Um, so one of the people I, I mentioned, uh, I, I just want to double check. So I want to get his name absolutely uh right it's uh um i'm just looking at my index here um yes that's uh dr nida chenagsan um who is someone that robert thurman has actually become very interested in uh Hmm. recently as well i I see him sort of attending lots of uh dr chenagsan's talks and uh, seminars um and he i think is is probably going to be one of the next sort of big important names um in tibetan buddhism in the west and it's interesting because he comes from this tibetan buddhist medical tradition um but in his uh books and writings he's often very happy to refer to tibetan buddhism as a form of psychology um the best kind of psychology he says because it, you know it leads to uh this liberation this awakening so i'm really keen to see and this is part of my idea of this ongoing dialogue how indigenous practitioners within these western traditions how they use psychology which bits they find useful uh, that they see it as a as maybe a lens or or, or a shared frame um, through which we can um, uh, maybe reinvent reimagine reenchant uh psychology i like the, the idea of reenchanting i know it's a term that gets banded around a fair amount um i sort of became quite a big fan of uh, Jeffrey Kripal's work um, and sort of ideas of re-enchanting the academy and uh, trying to bring spiritual experience sort of back in and recognizing that we, we can um, have this. Boy, boy I wish you luck. Good luck with that. Project. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean... well, we're sort of there, you know, we, we have, we have our, uh, we have our degree in social psychology, which, Mm-hmm. Um, you know, brings these transpersonal elements in that emphasizes the experiential. Uh, mm-hmm. We have our masters in interdisciplinary psychology um, mm-hmm. that also brings all these uh, qualities in that's uh, both reflective, reflexive, critical, experiential. Um, you know, we, we, we do it all at the moment and we're, we're able to yeah. um, for how long um you know but we'll you know we're we're going strong at the moment and i've I've noticed that we're finding more and more um 
alliances. My, my, my big thing at the moment with the British Psychological Society Transpersonal Psychology section is to you know, try and find authentic communities to make these networks. There aren't that many of us. Uh, and it seems daft that we're working kind of parallel, but but not not meeting. So, you know, yeah. I want to work a lot more with uh, psychosynthesis trusts. I want to work a lot more with spiritual crisis network. I want to work um, mm. a lot more with uh, different wisdom traditions, Buddhist traditions, Hindu traditions, not just Vedanta either, but recognizing the Vaishnavism, Shaivism, uh, you know, that these traditions that we perhaps haven't uh, engaged right. with as much as we should have. And, and that's why I think the like the Sufic tradition would be, uh, yes. there's, a, there's a very, very deep and well-articulated uh, uh, system there. And even the, you know, the modern, the fourth way tradition has a lot of uh, um, uh, conceptual framework for describing the, the process of transformation, some of which might be recognizably derived because I think Gurdjieff pulled from a lot of different traditions and reformulated, but uh, it's still a, a working body that informs these conversations. But I, want, I wanted to ask you a question uh, because as East meets West, as uh, as Western psychology, but even in the form of transpersonal psychology, meets uh, spiritual traditions from uh, different parts of the world. There's a safe space in talking about the psychological. Yeah. However, where it gets dangerous is when you talk about the cosmological, and these yeah. systems these systems bring different cosmologies in mm. that are at complete odds with the uh, dominant paradigm in the West of the uh, uh, scientific materialist cosmology. And I guess I'm, I'm interested in your perspective, having explored this, you know, <laughs> gone from cloud to cloud, uh, mm. how important is the spiritual cosmology uh, as the context for the psychological work? And I don't see that as easily resolved. Uh, no, no, it's not. Um, I remember having conversations um, at conferences with a with a wonderful transpersonal psychotherapist, uh, Dr. John Rowan, um, who was sort of a big name in um, sort of Western transpersonal psychotherapy, and um, we used to have this conversation uh, quite a lot because you know when, when you're dealing with cosmology, and and he said, well, can we can we find a space where we can say, okay, well. I don't necessarily have to take on fully this cosmology, but what if I were to sort of treat it as if it could be true or were true? What does that do to my uh, perspective? How does that enlarge um, my perspective? So, you know, treat it as if it might be true or if it were true. How does this, you know, um, I think we can almost take a Sufi <clears throat> approach to this, almost the idea of the imaginal uh, that we can work in different realms uh, of experience um, that we don't have to think of it in sort of that uh, more positivistic materialist um, sense. But if we were to imagine this way, what would it do? How would it shift um, our consciousness? I mean, I'm, I'm always uh, struck by um, approaches to shamanism, psychological approaches to shamanism. What is a soul journey? Where are you going exactly? <laughs> Uh, you know, are you traveling somewhere out there um, or are you sort of just traveling 
within you know you just are you encountering archetypes um you know what are these um mythical beings or, or creatures uh that you're encountering I, I always loved um that part in uh carl jung's the red book uh where he's he's conversing with the archetypes and they uh, you know he's saying so you're from um, i imagine i'm paraphrasing poorly here this is so you're from my imagination from my psyche and they say no we are real <laughs> you know um i was thought that was a really interesting um but you can i think Jung was was worried about that book for many years not wanting it to to, to get out so to speak because uh, the idea that these realms could be real uh, that these characters could be real um that that kind of turns a lot of things on its on its head um and i'm, I'm always fascinated with how how free a lot of my colleagues that work in anthropology are um, you know, they really immerse themselves in these schools and traditions. And I think transpersonal psychologists need to do the same. We, you know, we need to immerse ourselves in these traditions to fully understand them and experience them. You know, so uh, when I was writing about Taoism, I, I, I went to China. I met Taoist priests. I watched rituals. Um, and, you know, I, I, I tried to sort of see the world understand it you know these uh kind of celestial hierarchies and uh and sort of and and and, and spirits and gods and goddesses and immortals and the idea that you know you can um with enough cultivation you maybe you could ride a crane to uh kunlun or panglai or these these different realms um or in tibetan buddhism if you had that nang if you had pure vision maybe you could find these bales, uh, these hidden realms or, or find Shambhala. Um, and whether it's, uh, again, this is something I, I play with in the book. Um, and you can see that I'm, I'm kind of saying that we need to move away from the idea that it's just a state of mind mm -hmm. um, of idealizing it in that sense. And maybe I should have been a bit bolder, Maybe I chickened out a bit. Uh, you said, well, but, you know. well, you 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 raised the question. I, I mean, you, it, was, it wasn't a. It was brought up in passing, and particularly when you talked about the uh, the way in which the um, uh, wheel of existence or the the yes. six, the six Buddhist realms are understood as it comes into the West. How very quickly that was taken as a uh, allegory or a metaphor for psychological yeah. states and not, yeah. not as uh, existentially ex actually existence. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, M McMahon does that really well. I think he's probably one of the first people to do that in, um, in the sort of the making Buddhist modernism. Um, he, he looks at that, at that process. I think he, he looks at the way um, Chogyam Trungpa kind of, does it in that way as well um but i also found um references to uh like nichiren and the, in the japanese tradition um doing it as well that's yeah amazing. i remember i remember you had that in there it's a, yeah it's that's a... mainly thanks to donald lopez i mean all of this is pretty much thanks to other uh far more capable scholars and more original thinkers but i've tried to sort of synthesize it at least in an interesting way um and and try to to bring these things together. And, you know, I, I thank an awful lot of people at the beginning um, of, of this book. And then they're not always people that have directly um, 
I mean, I, I was very nervous about showing people stuff. Um, so, you know, very few people had actually seen anything um, in this, all, all mistakes on my own. Um, but, you know, these, everyone in there has been very much influential in my thinking. Um, so, for instance, it was um, uh, Michael Sasso and, and Livia Kain that really got me interested in, in studying Taoism in a more academic way, immersing myself in these traditions um, and people like Lama Jampa Thai. Um, it was probably the uh, Tendai <clears throat> traditional, the, the Tiantai, the, the, the Chinese uh, Buddhist tradition um, that kind of pushed me out of this more dogmatic frame um, and made me more uh, conciliatory, uh, looking for more kind of thesis, antithesis, um, and then synthesis, that's the word, um, of, of trying to bring these together, this idea of a middle way um, that I'm, I'm trying to, to bring, hopefully gives a more nuanced um, approach because my, my earlier work was probably psychologization, bad. Um, now it's more like psychologization. No, I can't say it. Um, <laughs> psychologization, um, well, it's more, it's more complex. Um, it's multifaceted. Um, it's part of a complex history. It's, um, and then if we look at it in terms of how um, Eastern and indigenous practitioners um, are using psychology, are themselves perhaps changing or challenging um, some of these dominant paradigms and approaches uh, in psychology. Yeah, we, um, we, we had recently had a conversation with Richard Payne, who was an editor and contributor to this uh, new Shambhala book called Secularizing Buddhism. And he's, mm-hmm. he's a scholar, uh, you know, a, a, a professor, but he's also a, a Shingon priest. Oh, right. Uh, okay. And, and um, yeah, and his, his gloss on this, the, the purpose for the title is that secularizing is a process. It's not an end state. And um, and so, you know, the intent of all the all the contributors to the essay are really speaking around uh, um, uh, uh, this process of the um, how secularization happens when it happens. I mean, Kate Crosby contributed to the book. Actually, uh, yeah. Charles Jones, who wrote wrote about Tai Shu, that's how I heard about. Tai oh Tai yes, Charles. Uh, yes, he yeah, wrote. Yeah, the, yeah. yeah. So, so that he's a contributor to the book. Yeah, McMahon oh, has a chapter yes. in the book. So it was a good. Actually, it's a good prep for our conversation because uh, a lot of the elements that you bring together show up in various ways. And a lot of my favorite authors in that. In that yeah, book. yeah. So oh, it's a. And I'm definitely but, going to. Uh, but but it's a it, it is his point is basically that there's this process and this process isn't just necessarily one that's in the West. It's a, you know, it's, as you point out, it's something that's been going on. I mean, I, Nitrin was a nice early reference to, to show that Nitrin was actually doing something along those lines. There's always this way in which people are recontextualizing spiritual traditions because they have some intent behind it. Mm. And, and, Nichiren certainly had one, um, but then to project onto him that he's the Martin Luther of, uh, you know, Japanese Buddhism is probably yeah. uh, its own kind of projection. Um, so it's, it's, there are, but he gets into more of the details of what secularism might be about, like the literalism, the uh, textual authority, the, you know, there, there's, 
there's different essentializing yeah essentializing is is and and that's the critique obviously that comes up with the modern secular buddhists that if you, you the claim that you somehow you have the privilege to know that this is the right original authentic yeah, Buddhism. That the is, secular is the authentic, the original, yeah, the pure. Yeah, and it's not like what you're producing is necessarily bad, but the claim that this is more essential is just a claim. It's not a. Yeah. It's reality. It's it's a, another transformation that you're imposing upon this uh, rather large, complex organism. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I sort of learned um, the hard way with with Taoism because I went into it with. Um, very kind of you might say kind of western orientalist sort of uh categories that this is religious Taoism over here with all the uh, i don't know why i'm going into a slightly john cleese <laughs> meets <laughs> david attenborough this is religious Taoism over here and over here is the philosophical and the philosophical is the good it's the high philosophy it's the uh you know it's the sophisticated and this bit over here is the it's the superstitious and you know it was a rude awakening uh, when I went to China and, and met Daosha, the Taoist priests, I was like, no, 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 no. It's all part of the same. Um, you know, the ritual makes reference to the, sort of the, the original scriptures and the, and, the, and the high philosophy and that it's all contained in the ritual. And, you know, it was uh, um, realizing these, these categories were, were meaningless when you, went, when you actually went to China, when you went to the temples. Mm. Um, that they, they they didn't see it, they didn't practice it in this way, and they didn't understand it um, in this way. And these were artificial kind of synthetic uh, categories that that we'd invented we in, in the West, I suppose, um, to say that you know this is how we are going to relate to this practice. That this is the pure stuff, the original stuff, the good stuff, and this is the superstitious stuff. Um, this is the cultural baggage if you like, and we can, we can do away with that. And through doing away with that, we can find the pure, the original. Um, and, you know, that's, that's all we're interested in, in the West. We want the best stuff. We want the pure stuff. And uh, we, we don't want to, uh, we don't want to be sort of wasting our time either. We, 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 you know, we want it all. We want it now. Um, and, and, but ritual is not part of what we want. No, it's not interesting. Yes. To. I mean that's something interesting in terms of the, in terms of Taoism in in the UK. Um, so, you know, when you go to Taoist retreats uh, with the British Taoist Association, there really isn't much, um, or there isn't any, as far as I'm aware, um, chanting of, of of the liturgies. So, like the the Daozan, sort of the great Taoist canon, um, a lot of that is is liturgy. Uh, a lot of it's devotional. Um, chanting which um, i did become interested in relatively recently because they started printing uh sort of pinyin chanting books of the morning mm. and evening ceremonies from the Chuanjin uh tradition and um you know these sort of practices of, of, of liturgy of, of chanting uh you know often music is part of the daosha's training it's the first thing they'll learn the chanting or the banging of the drum and this is how they you know become immersed in the Tao originally, you know, so that that music is the bridge between heaven and earth. Yeah. And um, that's cool. It's through the chant that you, you learn this, you learn to embody this. Um, and, you know, I've, I've, I've noticed that there doesn't seem to be much interest on the part of Western Taoist practitioners, um, mainly in Britain and in, in Germany, it's different. They seem um, oh, yeah. much more busy with the chanting and oh, interesting. <laughs> oh. books. Uh, we, uh, I think, sorry, go on. 
Yeah, I was just going to say we're getting close to our time, and this this is a topic that uh, uh, will probably take us another hour because it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a it's a it's a rich one here, and I I appreciate touching on it. But um, uh, I, so having uh, just published this book, I guess uh, in the closing couple minutes, maybe uh, you could tell us. So what's what's next for you? What's the next on the? Uh, uh, is there more on this theme? Is there more that uh, you see, you know, mining in this vein of uh, this very complex conversation of uh, worldviews and spiritual traditions? Yeah, I think one of the subjects that I keep coming back to um, is spirituality and technology. Um, there's, there's a bit in the book where I'm talking about the idea of uh, transmission and the, uh, I suppose the, the ideal setup is that you need to be face-to-face with the teacher and receive this transmission. But I, I noticed during COVID, um, increasing numbers of, of, of teachers, the Dalai Lama himself, uh, were giving transmissions and teachings um, online. Uh, the Dalai Lama was, the Kamapa was, many important teachers were giving these transmissions and initiations um, Online, I thought it's a fascinating age that we uh, that we live in, um, and I'm I'm wondering in terms of um, transmission and lineage um, technology, and I suppose the psychology here also. Um, <clears throat> it occurred to me recently the um, emergence of, of new disciplines within psychology, such as cyber psychology. Um, it mm-hmm. strikes me now that. Um, when we're talking about social psychology, increasingly we are talking about cyber psychology. Hmm. Uh, we can sort of differentiate between them to some extent, but we cannot meaningfully separate them anymore. And so considering the role technology plays in spirituality, um, in the tra- in transpersonal or transpersonal states, uh, this is something that I'm very interested in at the moment. Um, okay. We'll see if it bears any fruit. Well, we look forward to uh, uh, for uh, future conversations on that. That's a, that's oh, a, I hope so. I've I've thoroughly enjoyed this. Yeah. Well, well Elliot, yeah, we glad. appreciate and the so. uh, time and the uh, a very very interesting material and, and your uh, alliterative enthusiasm. <laughs> I, I I definitely enjoy. So thank you, thank you for joining <laughs> us on the Mystical Positivist. Thank you so much for your time. Take care. Be well. You have been listening to the Mystical Positivist. This is your host, Stuart Goodnick. This week on the show, we featured a pre-recorded conversation with Elliot Cohen, author of The Psychologization of Eastern Spiritual Traditions, Colonization, Translation, and Commodification. This essential book critically examines the various ways in which Eastern spiritual traditions have been typically stripped of their spiritual roots, content, and context to be more readily assimilated into secular Western frames of psychology. Thank you for joining us once again for The Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com as well as commentary and discussion of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send comments and feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com and join us again next Saturday. 